1: Today's podcast is presented by EPRA, the European Public Real Estate Association. Facing global megatrends like green transition and ageing population, how will listed real estate contribute to a sustainable future and financial security for Europe?
2: Welcome to EU Confidential. I'm Suzanne Lynch, Political's Chief Brussels Correspondent. Today, we'll be hearing from Pascal Donoghue, president of the Eurogroup. That's the formal name for the group of finance ministers from Eurozone countries, those members of the EU that use the euro currency and who meet regularly here in Brussels. Given the current economic challenges, we wanted to hear from Donoghue about Europe's economic outlook and how the bloc is coping with high inflation, investment challenges, and the economic consequences of the war in Ukraine.
0: If I look at the tone in the Eurogroup, now versus when I first joined it, which is over five and a half years ago, I have seen a very big shift in that tone and a big shift in the political atmosphere, an appreciation that solidarity is a strength and we have to work at it to maintain it. And it's not always easy.
2: But first, issues of transparency continue to dominate the headlines in Brussels this week. In just a moment, we'll explain what's behind the New York Times' decision to sue the European Commission over disclosure of text messages by Ursula von der Leyen, the President of the EU's legislative body. And in the European Parliament, two more members, that's MEPs, have been arrested in connection to the ongoing Qatargate scandal, which we've covered before here on the podcast. So to bring us up to speed, our European Parliament reporter, Eddie Wax, is joining us from Strasbourg, where the Parliament is wrapping up its latest session. Hi, Eddie. Hi there, Suzanne. And Sarah Wheaton, our chief policy correspondent and author of Plisko's EU Influence newsletter, who's here with me in studio. Hi, Sarah.
3: Great to be here, Suzanne.
2: Great to have you. Eddie... Look, you're down in Strasbourg there and we'd love to know a bit of the mood, at this week. First of all, I have to ask you, I saw reports this week that the chamber was evacuated at some point. Sounds very dramatic.
4: Yes, there was a very dramatic moment yesterday um, on Wednesday when Kurdish independence activists burst into the chamber in the visitor's gallery and suddenly, you know, started shouting and uh, demanding the, the release of a, of a PKK founder.
2: That's the Kurdistan Workers' Party, the PKK.
4: Hundreds of MEPs or however many were in the hemicycle, probably not hundreds, but some were evacuated and the session was adjourned for three hours.
1: Dear colleagues, uh, this morning there was a security
0: incident in the hemicycle that led to the suspension of the session for a short while. The situation is as follows. Individuals uh, having entered as visitors staged a protest from the visitors gallery and refused to leave. Uh, There was a concern that they would cause uh, harm to themselves as part of their protest. But I am pleased to tell you that the situation uh, was resolved peacefully. Nobody was hurt and no one uh, was injured. And all the protesters are now out
1: of the Parliament's premises.
2: Well, good to know you're safe there, Eddie. And uh, look, you have been covering also for us the big story that has engulfed the parliament over the last few months and that has been catergate the corruption scandal that has seen a number of meps being arrested fill us in on the latest we had some developments over the last week
4: yeah so i think the two main developments are the arrests of two more meps both from the socialists and democrats group uh, one is the belgian mep mark tarabella and the other was uh, andrea Cozzolino. so mark tarabella well-known socialist Wallunian MEP. He's now in prison on, on pretrial detention. He's been charged with uh, corruption, money laundering, participation in a criminal organization. And uh, with Cozzolino, he, he was arrested and, and then released, but the Belgian authorities are basically trying to extradite him from Italy, which is where he was. And he was, the very moment he was arrested last Friday, he, he was actually in a hospital. Uh, and his lawyer has been saying that all this stress that's been on him for months now about whether he'd be arrested or not would he be able to give his side of the story has been giving him heart problems so there's a real human element here or at least the lawyers are tugging on our on our heartstrings uh, and reminding us that these people are human beings but essentially that's where we are we've got Ava Kylie, the former vice president of the European parliament she's been in prison for over two months now former MEP Antonio Panzeri as well in prison And Francesco Giorgi, who who is kind of connected to everybody because he was Eva Kiley's partner, was is Eva Kiley's partner, was the former assistant for Panzeri, and also that latest Italian MEP arrested Cozzolino, who was also his assistant.
2: So what's going to happen next? I mean, where does the investigation stand?
4: Well, at the moment, it seems like they're still very much in a sort of gathering information phase. Um, and Michel Kles, who's the investigating judge, has now been the subject of an appeal by uh, Mark Tarabellas' uh, legal team, who say that he should recuse himself from the case. They're accusing him of not uh, respecting the principle of uh, innocence until proven guilty in the case of Mark Tarabella. So there's there's legal battles going on, and all the while, you know, journalists like us are digging into trying to work out what did happen. And and you know, there's two main countries in the frame here: it's Qatar and Morocco. And, you know, the the fingers are pointing at them and saying that they paid money, you know, vast amounts of money, thousands and thousands of euros to these lawmakers in order to get them to sort of operate behind the scenes and maybe influence other MEPs to do things in the parliament, legislative work and and, and in declarations and things like that to basically be favours to Morocco and Qatar. So that's what everybody's trying to work out, you know, how far did these countries, if they did, you know, manage to bend the parliament's work to their bidding? Of course, the countries at the centre of this have dismissed these allegations as baseless. And of course, you know, everyone who has been arrested or charged so far, you know, we need to have a proper trial and, and full examination of all the evidence. And only then will we be able to say categorically what's actually happened there. So there's a lot of speculation and a lot of drama.
2: Nonetheless, it has thrown a light on the actions, the activities of the European Parliament in a very, very negative way. Sarah, you have written a big piece that we link to in our show notes about how MEPs are resisting efforts to clean up the chamber.
3: Right. MEPs for a long time have claimed this idea of freedom of mandate and their attitude is this isn't universally the case, but people who have resisted both before Qatargate and after Qatargate have resisted efforts to make the parliament more transparent, to require them to disclose all their meetings, to require them to be accountable for the money that they're spending. They've said, look, we are elected by the people. And we need to have the freedom to represent the European people in whatever way we want without any sort of political or other interference. And you can sort of understand that argument. You know, we we always call the commission unelected bureaucrats. Well, the European citizens do have the right to make a decision about whether these MEPs keep their job or not. But at the same time, this scandal and the allegations are causing some real soul searching about the culture within the European Parliament and within the European institutions more broadly. And so um, we're seeing a renewed push for something that is called the interinstitutional EU ethics body, um, which I can explain in more detail in a second. But um, the idea was that this body would sort of be an overarching watchdog to show common standards of ethics and transparency on things like conflicts of interest or a revolving door of going from being a lawmaker to being a lobbyist. This idea of an independent ethics body has been around for a long time, and both the commission and the parliament officially said that they wanted to do it, but right before the scandal broke, it had been very stalled. Ultimately, the commission said they didn't really think there would be a way to actually have something with teeth. It would just be kind of another EU advisory body. But now we're seeing Vice President Vera Yarova of the commission say, we're going to put out a proposal for this in March The parliament, we expect uh, within a few hours of this recording to vote on a non-binding resolution saying, yes, we do want to see this proposal and we would like to see this body have actual powers to start its own investigations that would apply to all the different EU agencies.
2: Okay, so as you point out there, I mean, they mentioned this for years, I think, at the very beginning of the term of the current term of the European Commission. President von der Leyen set out her proposal on this and it took something like this to actually get the political momentum behind it so at least they are coming forward with something Uh, so let's see how that progresses Eddie, one of the other issues that seemed to be in the air in Strasbourg this week has been a debate about monitoring NGOs the role of the NGO that that's how a lot of this alleged activity happened Uh, fill us in on that
4: Yes, yeah, so this was a debate pushed for by the, the European People's Party, the largest group in the parliament, and they wanted to really put a spotlight on, on NGOs and, and their role. But after a bit of back and forth and, and debating, what emerged in the title of the debate was that it would be squarely focused on two NGOs that have kind of been swept up in this Qatargate in this scandal, one of which was pretty well known to listeners, I suppose, something called Fight Impunity, uh, which was set up by Pierre Antonio Panzeri after he stopped being an MEP, What actually happened in the debate, which took place pretty late on on Monday evening here in Strasbourg, was that the debate, of course, spiralled out of the bounds of its headline and instead it became a debate about the existence of NGOs and do we need
1: NGOs and as we have rules here in the Parliament, for members of the Parliament and for everyone entering, we should have rules for NGOs as well.
0: So let's be very clear, this is a corruption scandal and it's not an NGO scandal. So rather than attacking NGOs, not just in this debate today, and some of these NGOs are actually our biggest allies when it comes to fighting corruption,
4: we should... NGOs are continuously giving privi- given privileges and exemptions that must stop immediately. We cannot allow NGOs to continue manipulating European positions. The left-wing politicians were saying, of course we do, we need to defend them and we should be looking at corporate lobbyists and tightening up rules for them if we're going to tighten up rules for NGOs in the parliament. But then of course the right-wing saying, you know, we need to have more scrutiny, we need to be checking where does this money come from, does the money that funds NGOs, does it come from third parties? So it kind of The debate never really focused on the two NGOs at hand.
2: So, yeah, this is a really interesting, I suppose, philosophical question about the role of NGOs, non-governmental organisations, you know, who funds them, how do they get access to parliament, those kind of things. Sarah?
3: Yeah, and Eddie's comments really made me sort of step back and think about some bigger dynamics. And and as much as maybe I expressed this idea that there could be new political momentum for changes, the dynamic that Eddie was describing is actually a dynamic that has long predated uh, this scandal. The reality is that the right and the center right have always been a bit more skeptical of NGOs and civil society organizations. They've pushed for them to have to be more transparent. And in fact, Many NGOs complain that within the EU's existing transparency structure, including a database called the Transparency Register, they already actually have to disclose more information about their funding and their budget than corporate lobbyists do. And that is a change that had already been inserted in by the center-right. So now NGOs are saying that there's a witch hunt going on against them. Um, Whereas, of course, on the left and the centre-left, there was always more criticism of corporate lobbyists and a desire to make them be more transparent. So rather than sort of a moment of of unity on making big changes, we're really seeing the different sides of the political spectrum just kind of retreat back and use these arguments to reinforce what they already wanted.
2: Interesting stuff. Now, it's not just the European Parliament, but over the last week, we've seen an interesting development. The European Commission has been sued by the New York Times. This is to do with text messages sent by the Commission President Ursula von der Leyen to the Chief Executive of Pfizer at the height of the COVID pandemic. Sarah, fill us in, give us a bit of background. Why is the New York Times suing the European Commission?
3: In early 2021, the European Union was behind the United States and the UK in procuring mRNA vaccines. And so there was huge pressure on von der Leyen and the Commission to speed up this unprecedented joint procurement process. And so the New York Times reported that von der Leyen and Pfizer CEO Albert Bourla were texting back and forth as she tried to pin him down on signing contracts, providing vaccines. This was obviously quite an interesting detail. And then a different journalist, a European journalist named Alex Fanta, tried to see, hey, he figures, hey, these texts are public documents. I would be very curious to get a little peek at this private conversation. And so he tried to use a Freedom of Information request to get these texts That was denied. Then the European ombudsman got involved. Emily O'Reilly's the ombudsman. She looked into it. She said, hey, the commission should really be providing these things. But the commission over years now basically has said, we can't find these texts. The assumption that most reporters have is that, you know, they were deleted. The commission says, we can't find them. And uh, even if we could, we, you know, we didn't need to save them. They're just ephemeral communications. They don't represent real policymaking. So this has now sort of continued to expand into a real question of principle of how much transparency should there be of these sort of private interactions between commission officials and other European officials and corporate executives. So that brings
2: us to this week and the news that the New York Times is suing the commission. What do we know about this action?
3: So we know that they are suing in order over the commission's decision not to release these text messages. And you know, as journalists, we're super excited to see where this goes, if it goes to the European Court of Justice, because this could really set a precedent on how much transparency there needs to be for these sorts of private communications.
2: What I think fascinating about this is that von der Leyen, while she was a minister in Germany, in the German government, also was involved with a text message scandal about deleting text messages, and was brought before a committee there. So, you know. In that sense, you know, she's got form here, and um, one would think you would learn your lesson after being hauled over the coals once. To now be in another controversy over text messages,
3: your point about her her history with this, also one thing that just kind of baffles us as sort of political observers is, she could have made the political argument. Heck, yes. I was texting Albert Borla and saying, where the heck are our vaccines? You know, it could have made her look quite strong. We see um, Commissioner Thierry Breton pretty much bragging all the time about his conversations with corporate executives. So we also are just scratching our heads. I mean, you have this sort of principle of transparency, but there's also just sort of a weird political calculation here that I just sincerely don't get
2: yeah i mean i mean one of the questions was what was in those text messages you know because you're, you're right you know the public relations disaster that was the europeans vaccine procurement policy it, it's easy to forget now but at the time as you said she was under huge pressure to deliver and get something um look thanks for joining us and filling us in on that sarah thank you to eddie we'll see you back in brussels eddie next week thanks
3: thank you thank you
2: Coming up is our discussion with Eurogroup President Pascal Donoghue on the outlook and challenges for the Eurozone economy. Stay with us. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content
1: In an era where the green transition and retirement security are top priorities for the next EU commission, listed real estate is a dual force in addressing these global megatrends. As the world strives to meet the Paris Agreement's objectives, the sector provides transformation to Europe's building stock, significantly reducing our carbon footprint and advancing sustainable development goals. Amid financial uncertainties, particularly around retirement income, Listed real estate offers a resilient investment choice, promising stability, growth, and positive social impacts. It provides crucial infrastructure Europe needs, from healthcare facilities to sustainable housing, ensuring a greener, more secure future for millions. EPRA and its members are dedicated to leveraging this potential, working alongside EU institutions to foster investments that build and benefit society and Europe.
2: The Eurogroup is a grouping of finance ministers from Eurozone countries. That's the 20 EU countries that use the Euro as their currency. It's a powerful body that meets regularly in Brussels and it plays a central role in Europe's economic policymaking. The current president is Irishman Pascal Donoghue. The Dublin native is a member of Leo Varadkar's Fine Gael party and he has served in successive governments since 2013 holding a range of portfolios such as European Affairs Minister, Finance Minister and currently he's Minister for Public Expenditure and Reform. He has been President of the Eurogroup since July 2020. I caught up with Donoghue earlier this week in Brussels as he was wrapping up a meeting of Eurogroup Finance Ministers. Now as we meet there was some good news actually that coincided with this week's Eurogroup meeting Um, and that was the winter economic forecast from the European Commission that suggested that things aren't so bad economically and it it said that the growth outlook for this year has been moved up to 0.8% for the EU and 0.9% in the euro area and it looks like we're not heading for a recession. What's your uh, response to that?
0: That these figures remind me of how we can underestimate the resilience of the euro area. Uh, What the euro area has demonstrated now is as in the aftermath of the pandemic when the recovery from the pandemic was more comprehensive than was expected. Similarly, we are seeing, even with the economic consequences of this awful war, employment within the euro area is resilient, in fact, it's at a record high. And we are seeing that growth for last year held up in a stronger way than many would have expected. So those figures are welcome. They demonstrate the resilience of the euro and the euro area. But all that being said, there's still a sobering reminder to us of the complex risks Mm. that lie ahead in 2023 and beyond.
2: Because, I mean, the big economic story for most people over the last year or two has been inflation Mm. and these record levels, really, the ECB trying, clambering to keep up with that. Now, we have seen some positives on that, too. I mean, are you still worried about the inflationary climate?
0: Of course it's a concern, and the fact that inflation has come down has to be welcomed, but it has still come down to a level that is making households poorer and it is making it very difficult for businesses to plan credibly and predictably for the year ahead. So it is welcome that it has come down, but we have a lot of work to do, and the main area the Eurogroup will have to engage in for this year is what is the right budgetary response to inflation that is coming down but is still too high. And what we have done meeting after meeting after meeting is to try to plot our way through that challenge. And I believe we're making progress on us.
2: And when you're talking about the resilience of the eurozone economy, where do you think the strength is?
0: So I pick out two areas. The first area is that the economic instruments that we put in place to deal with the pandemic, notably the COVID recovery fund, and the national reforms that have been required as part of us is a response to a completely different problem in a completely different context but that has played a very positive role with regard to the maintenance of employment levels after the pandemic that is carrying through to today so the resilience of jobs within the euro area is a really important feature that in turn has fed into a growth rate for last year that compares really favourably to anything that's happening elsewhere in the world. Mm. And then the second thing that has played a big role in that resilience is the incremental progress week by week, month by month, year by year in strengthening the regulation of our financial sector and the work the financial sector has done in recovering from the global financial crisis. That specifically meant that in dealing with the pandemic and then again with the war, our financial sector was not an amplifier of risk. So employment, our financial sector and our response back to the pandemic have all played a really big role in deepening the resilience of the euro area exactly at the time we needed it. But Suzanne, there's no room for complacency, a lot of work still to do.
2: Over the last year, looking back, we're approaching the one year anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I mean, has that completely changed the European economic picture and and now is really what dominates everything when it comes to decision making.
0: It has changed it. It's changed it in a number of different ways. It fundamentally altered the inflationary challenge that the euro is confronting. Um, As you'll know, Suzanne, for most of the history of the euro area, our challenge was inflation levels that we wanted to get up to the mandate of the ECB We're now in a situation where we have inflation levels that are many multiples.
2: 2% it's supposed to be.
0: Many multiples of that 2% figure. So the most obvious effect is the degree to which it's fundamentally changed the inflationary environment for last year, for this year and for next year. The other effect that it's had, which is more political and a lot more subtle, but really, really important is running in the aftermath of the pandemic, even in the aftermath of Brexit, I can see such a shift in tone regarding the appreciation of our interdependence and a real commitment to use that interdependence as a source of strength. And if I look at the tone in the Eurogroup now versus when I first joined it, which is over five and a half years ago, I have seen a very big shift in that tone and a big shift in the political atmosphere, an appreciation that solidarity is a strength and we have to work at it to maintain us. And it's not always easy.
2: But when you say solidarity, you mean within the EU, like within different countries together?
0: I mean within yeah. the European Union, within the Euro, but of course then the new dimension to it, which goes back to the question you put to me a moment ago then, is our relationship with Ukraine, yeah. our relationship with a country that we want to have a destiny within the European Union, that at the moment are involved in a appalling war uh, for values that are at the heart of the European Union. And we will, uh, I have no doubt at all, in the time ahead, have to look at what that solidarity means for them beyond the basic fundamental needs that we have in supporting their defence efforts and supporting the actual financing of the state of Ukraine.
2: So you're talking about things like reconstruction, for example?
0: Well, this is a debate that's only beginning at the moment. Uh, As you know, this is a big theme of the G7 presidency uh, led by uh, Japan. But there will come a moment in which we have to look at how we can support the rebuilding of Ukraine when we get to the point that the war conditions allow that to happen. And I certainly strongly believe that the European Union will have to be at the heart of how we do that.
2: Now, one important thing that is happening this year in the financial world in Brussels is a proposed change to the bloc's fiscal rules. What that basically means is that the European Commission wants to relax the rules that oblige EU countries to meet certain economically responsible targets each year in their national budgets. The change in strategy is not a done deal, Germany, for example, has issues with the proposal. But the move towards giving countries more flexibility, it's all a bit of a change from a decade ago, when austerity was the buzzword. I asked Donoghue about it. Ten years ago, we were at the height of the Eurozone crisis, and the mantra was austerity. Do you think it's interesting now, that the orthodoxy shifted, that now the Commission is talking about loosening fiscal rules? It was all about, during the Eurozone bailout, Ireland, Greece, Portugal, having to stick to these rules. And now all of a sudden, the European Commission is saying, well, actually, let's look at introducing more flexibility. Is there a fundamental shift? Is there a kind of revision or are people looking now critically at the role of austerity and the policy of austerity that was so pushed by countries like Germany 10 years ago?
0: Well, there has been a change in the nature of the political debate. But one of the things that has made a difference is in the aftermath of the Eurozone, confidence crisis and the global financial crisis the euro area has now been able to retain the faith of financial markets in how it is funding itself and critically due to the work of the ECB due to the work of finance ministers and the euro group despite the pandemic and despite the war euro area countries are still able to fund their borrowing needs in a credible way with financial markets. And that has made, of course, then, a really big difference to the nature of the debate that we have. And I think what is a fair point to say is the area of investment in our future is more prominent than where we were a decade ago. And in turn, the reason for that, Suzanne, is if you look at levels of private sector and public sector investment in our long-term future, that never really recovered from the global financial crisis. And now we have really pressing needs with regard to climate, to a digital transition that we do have to fund, but the public sector won't be able to do it all.
2: On that, I mean, your role as Minister for Public Expenditure now in Ireland, I mean, the Irish economy in a way could be seen as as a microcosm for what's happening in a lot of European but also Western economies, that this imbalance, there's a major housing crisis, for example, in Ireland, and I'm including the IMF here and the EU and international partners 10 years ago who insisted on very strong cutbacks are somehow to blame for a lack of investment 10 years ago in Ireland that's now bearing fruit. That's yeah. now, now there's a big problem because investment has not kept pace with the rate of growth that bounced back.
0: So the fact that we were not able to rebuild up our capital investment in the aftermath of the global financial crisis is objectively a factor in many of the challenges that we have within our societies at the moment. And if you look at where we are in Ireland, which does offer some important themes of commonality with where we are now within the euro area at the moment, in 2016, our levels of public capital investment in our economy were around 3.5 to 3.6 billion euro. For 2023, it'll be more than 12 billion euro. And much of that 12 billion euro will be on how we catch up on investment needs, But where I would differ in your analysis is, for me, the cause in the inability to maintain capital investment during the global financial crisis, from the point of view of Ireland, was in the role of the European Union and the IMF. It was the fact that the financial markets lost faith in Ireland. And that, for me, is the causality. Ireland was not able to borrow. And regardless of the political framework that was in place from either the European Union or indeed elsewhere, the brutal reality that Ireland faced, and Suzanne, I can remember those days vividly, and I'm sure you can too, is Ireland was not able to fund itself on the sovereign debt markets. And that's, for me, the greatest lesson I've had in my political life, that the moment you get into that situation, there are no good consequences left, Mm. which is why you have to do all you can to make sure you never end up there. And it's why I'm equally determined, despite the volatility of the economic environment that we're all in now, that public capital investment has to be maintained. Because the long term consequences of it going down too low are very difficult.
2: Donoghue plays a key role at the EU level as Eurogroup president, but it's politics back at home that's caused him some headaches of late. Donoghue ran into difficulty earlier this year over failure to properly declare expenses related to campaign posters back in the 2016 general election.
0: Well, look, the political focus in relation to us has now changed because there are other matters that our that's our parliament, is currently focusing on. You know, from my point of view, I profoundly regret what happened. It was in relation to the accounting of hundreds of euros of election expenses, for a service that was provided to my campaigns and the matter now will be evaluated by our independent commission who looks at these matters. But upon becoming aware of the issue and then investigating it, I amended the submissions that I made to our electoral commission. But the point I made during the political debate around it in Ireland is I did try to make the case for proportionality in all of us. It. it was about a service provided in budding up posters that had expenses of Hundreds of euros for each of the campaigns I was involved in.
2: Donoghue was re-elected for a second term as Eurogroup chief in December. So what does he want to achieve for the rest of his time as president?
0: It will be the issue of budgetary coordination. It will be about how we have the right budgetary stance within the euro area that protects our levels of employment but doesn't add to our inflationary risk. And this will be a very complex challenge about the relationship between budgetary policy and monetary policy and then the budgetary policy mix within the euro area. That's my really, really big project. And I am confident that based on the relationships and work that I've done with all my euro area colleagues, that by month by month, we'll get there on us.
2: OK, Pascal Donahue, Eurogroup President, thanks very much for joining us on the
0: podcast. Thank you, Suzanne.
2: And that's it for this week. Be sure to follow EU Confidential wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. We're here every Thursday. If you want to get in touch with us directly, you can do so by emailing us. The address is podcast at politico.eu. This week's episode was produced by our executive producer for audio, Christina Gonzalez, with production assistance from Ellen Bonin. And our editor is James Randerson. I'm Suzanne Lynch in Brussels. See you next week.
1: Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music. For all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com/newsadfree.